Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, welcome back to Hashtag Dead to Me, The Interviews. I am Dr. Onodoro Townsend. In the TV series Hashtag Dead to Me, we explore the stories of 10 couples from all over Britain and Ireland whose relationships were born out of the digital age and would all take a turn for the tragic. Each week on Dead to Me, the interviews, we're speaking directly with the families affected by these crimes and trying to understand how such tragedies happen and what can be done to protect ourselves and our loved ones. I'm Dr. Onodoro Townsend and I'm a criminologist. I've spent most of the past decade researching crime. And the reason that that can be really important is because not only am I learning why people commit crime, but also ultimately the hope is that way we can learn how to protect ourselves. That's ultimately why we're doing this podcast, because we want to know how to protect ourselves and how to protect the people that we love. This week we are speaking to the family of Kerry Woolley. If you haven't watched the programme yet, the TV series Hashtag Dead to Me is on crime and investigation now. Police, ambulance. That is the voice of Ian Bennett. And what you're hearing is him on police body cam footage as he calls his mum. He's claiming that he's found his friend Kerry stabbed in her flat in the West Midlands. The doors wasn't open. I had to pull the handle. Yeah. And then I walked into that. I'm sorry, sir. When was the last time you saw her? One o'clock, I left her this morning. Waiting outside the property are Kerry's sister, Lisa, and her husband, Steve. Never forget turning the corner into that road. The amount of emergency services, it looked like there was a riot. And we got out, walked towards the gates. The sergeant came to the gate and said, well, who are you? He says, with the family of the lady who lives in that flat, uh, is she OK? And I'll never forget the policeman's face. He just kind of shook his head. How on earth were we going to tell two small children that their mum had been killed? Kerry Woolley was a loving mom. She had a high-flying career, but she began to struggle with alcohol dependency, and that's when her world fell apart. When she was separated from her children, she turned to the internet looking for company, and that is when she found Ian Bennett. He was absolutely aware of her vulnerabilities because I told him, but he said he wanted to help her. He knew she was battling with alcohol, and he was sitting drinking with her. So that really wasn't helping her. Bennett had gone to the same school as Lisa and Kerry and was known in their community. 
but within weeks of their meeting, Kerry was dead. He had stabbed her more than 50 times. There was mention of suffocation, um, strangulation, um, and then obviously the over 50 knife wounds with two different knives. Very quickly, Ian Bennett is placed under arrest. So time is 4.40. You can be under arrest for murder at this time, OK? You didn't have murder. It's only it's a, it's a suspicion at the moment, OK, based on obviously what's happened here. But there's another person at the scene, Bennett's mother, Linda. Where are you going? Uh, so at the moment we'll be going to custody. Uh, I don't know which custody, I'll let you know. Probably possibly going to be Coventry, hopefully. Coventry? Yeah. <laughs> Ian Bennett is sentenced to a life imprisonment with a minimum term of 25 years for the murder of Kerry. Linda Bennett is also found guilty of helping her son to try to get away with murder. The evil started there, with not just the son but the mother. So I'm joined now by Lisa, who's Kerry's sister. Thank you so much for joining, Lisa. Um, so you were really close with your sister. Can you just tell us a little bit more about what she was like? Kerry was very outgoing. She was bubbly. She had she had an amazing smile. She was, she was very good at lifting moods. She, she always seemed like she was really happy. She, she lived for her family. She was very family orientated. She didn't do much with her friends. It was all about the children, um, the parents. Just, just all family. Everything we did was as a family. And I know that uh, Kerry had been going through a really difficult time, um, but it seemed like she was trying to get her life back on track. Can you just tell us a bit about what was going on for Kerry? So she she started drinking quite heavily. We we don't know what caused that. Um, some people would say it was um, the, the stressful job that she had. Um, she was drinking heavily. Mm-hmm. And when did she first meet Bennett? So she first met Bennett in May, June 2020. So I think we'd just come out of lockdown and COVID. Um, and I believe they got in contact through Facebook. They started spending time together and, and just going for drinks and things. Just, just a normal, what seemed like a normal friendship. And, you know, I imagine she she was quite lonely at the time, maybe. I mean, COVID was very difficult, very isolating for a lot of people, especially if Kerry had been going through some difficult times. Yeah, I think um, I think she must have been lonely um, because she, like I say, she did. We saw her when we could and she saw the children when she could. But obviously because of COVID, it wasn't that easy. So, yeah, she, she would have been lonely. And I know that uh, Bennett had gone to the same school as both of you. Do you think that that maybe meant that she trusted him a little bit more? There was a bit of a shared life experience there in a way? Yeah, possibly. Um, he was 12 months younger than her, so he was a year younger at school. Um, I don't remember him from school. We knew the same, or we knew of the same people, so it wasn't a friendship group, a friendship group but we did know of the same people. Mm-hmm. It seems like they got to know each other very quickly. You know, you're saying that this all unfolded over the course of not even two months. Yeah, no, they did get to know each other very quickly and she um, she went and sat with him while he was working from home. Um, she, she was going to his uh, parents' house for dinner. Um, so, yeah, they, they did get to know each other very quickly. 
So, Lisa, you've mentioned that there was a bit of a build-up happening between Bennett and your sister, Kerry. Can you tell us a bit about the weekend where this all escalated? The Friday night, um, they'd gone out to a local bar um, just just for a few drinks, I think, um, and they'd met uh, they'd met a couple that they'd got chatting to in the bar, and I believe they went back to this couple's house for to, to carry on drinking after the bar had closed. I think Kerry and the other girl um, stayed in the uh, flat or apartment, um, and Ian and the other girl's partner um, went to um, the nearby garage to, to get some drinks. And when when they came back to the apartment, um, Kerry had taken her jumper off. It was July, it was boiling hot. Ian Bennett had accused her of cheating on him with the girl. Well, Kerry wasn't bisexual. That seems particularly unusual because, you know, they weren't even in a relationship. No, they weren't. And so I can remember getting a phone call in the early hours of that morning um, with him um, shouting down the phone that she cheated on him and how could she do this to me? I believe there'd been a row. I believe he threw the remote control at a TV and smashed the television. And then the following day, he was back with Kerry in her apartment and they phoned me up at about four o'clock, I think it was, in the afternoon and said that they'd sorted things out and um, he was going to replace the television that he'd broken. Um, and they basically, for whatever reason, asked me not to tell my mum and dad. I don't know whether Kerry was embarrassed by the accusations that he was making or whether they just didn't want them to know. Um, and we kind kind of we we just left it at that. They seemed happy enough. They weren't. They seemed fine. Mm-hmm. And then that evening, I can remember um, Kerry uploaded a, a photo of her and Ian on Facebook. They they looked happy enough. Um, and then it wasn't till following day when Ian contacted me and told me that he'd found her in the apartment. It was kind of a weekend of rows, yeah. Yeah, so it seems like it escalated, but almost looked like it was back on track before Bennett did what he did. Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely. He he did tell me on the Sunday that he'd left the apartment in the early hours of the morning because his mum and dad were apparently having a row and he was going home to sort it out. But that story... I think he'd already killed her at that point. Did it surprise you how possessive he was becoming? Yeah, some of the things he said made him out to be um, very possessive. She had a male friend that she worked with and he he didn't want her speaking to him. Um, So there was certain things that made me think, well, you've only known each other six weeks. How can you be jealous of her after six weeks? It seems to me like it was building into a very coercive, controlling you know, friendship, if not relationship, but, you know, very much that he was trying to manipulate Kerry. Is that the impression that you as her family were getting? Yeah, because she, she was very vulnerable. We'd, we'd learned that about her over the previous couple of years. She she was vulnerable. She was, she wanted to be loved. She just wanted to be loved um, after a long-term relationship. Um. Yeah, that was very difficult and we we tried to get her help, but 
I think in her head, she didn't think there was a problem. So she just kept doing what she was doing. But, but she was vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened the day that Kerry was murdered, from what you can remember? Yeah, so on, on the actual day, so this was um, Sunday the 20th of July, um, on that day, um, Ian Bennett had contacted me asking if I'd spoken to Kerry that day. So I hadn't spoke to her that day. Um, and he, he said that he hadn't spoke to her either. And I said, oh, she's probably asleep. Just leave her. Um, I think they'd had a row the night before and he'd left her house, her apartment, in the early hours of the Sunday morning. Um, and they'd had... They'd had a row about that, and I basically just thought, oh, it would blow over. Um, But then, I think it was about an hour later, um, he sent me a message asking me to contact him him urgently. Um, But I'd got Terry's children with me, so I couldn't ring him immediately. But before I'd even had a chance to send the children, put the children in a separate room or um, take them somewhere else. He was calling me again and I picked up the phone and he was, he, he was hysterical. Um, he told me that she'd, he'd gone to her apartment because he couldn't get hold of her. He'd gone to the apartment. The door was pushed through, but it was unlocked. So he'd walked in and he said that it looked like and there was blood everywhere and it looked like she'd been attacked. Yeah, we saw in the documentary that uh, he told all of these lies essentially to try and get away with murder. And, you know, we heard him even on police cam footage explaining that he'd found her body. And I can only imagine, you know, maybe you can speak to a bit what that's like as a family member when you're then finding out the details of what did happen after this person has, you know, actively called you up and lied to you. Yeah, it was. Um, it was not an easy conversation. So me, my dad and my partner went round to the apartment because I think I think it didn't really sink in. So what he had told me, I don't think it really sunk in until we actually turned onto her road and saw um, the police and the ambulances. Um, and, and even then, I don't know what I thought at that point. I think... I think you just don't want to believe she's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they were already there. We knew something was wrong when we saw the police and the ambulances and everything. I mean, another thing that shocked me was from the footage I've seen how calm he was when yeah. he was telling what we now know was lies to the police. I mean, you were there outside the house. So mm-hmm. what was that like? I mean, you know, how was he behaving and, and were you suspicious of him? So I can remember pulling up outside the apartment and we went over to a police officer that was standing um, outside the gates, I think he was. And we explained who we were. And I just remember saying, is she dead? And he didn't need to answer us. His face said it all. But I can remember looking over and seeing um, Ian Bennett outside the front door so he was behind the gates but outside the front door of the apartment um and he just he was just stood there 
And I still don't think I thought at that time that it was him. I just remember him standing there. I don't remember him being upset or anything like that. He was just stood there. Another part of this story that is surprising, I guess we could say, is uh, Bennett's mother's involvement. You know, she was involved in him trying to cover up and, and spreading these lies in this story. Were you surprised by the extent of her involvement and lies? Yes, definitely. I remember her standing outside um, the gate and I remember her saying, coming over, so I saw them cross the road and they came over and she actually um, introduced herself to me. Um, so she said that she was Ian's mum and that they'd become quite fond of Kerry over the last few weeks. Um, but she also pointed out that it was very sad what had happened to Kerry, but she was only there for Ian. So she did point that out at the time. Do you know much about what their relationship was like, Bennett and his mother? Um, I didn't know anything at all about it until we went to court, until the trial. And I think, I don't know how to describe it other than it was um, quite a strange relationship. Um, I remember him being referred to as the apple of her eye. He was 38 years old and he still lived at home. Um, So without being judgmental, we can think what we want about that, can't we? (laughs) We can. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that trial? Because this is when, you know, you became aware of everything that had happened, Bennett's involvement and his mother's involvement in trying to clear this all up and, and help him get away with it. Yeah, the trial went on for, I think it was three and a half weeks. He didn't take the stand. So his his mum did take the stand and she denied knowing anything about what had happened, even though he'd gone home to her that night. Um, she, she'd washed his clothes because he'd apparently spilt coke on them. He'd blowed him around the following day. They'd gone past the apartment a few times, but she still denied knowing anything about it. She said she didn't know why, what he was carrying in the bags that he'd thrown into the canal that night, even though it was like two o'clock in the morning. And ultimately she was convicted for helping him to try and get away with this. Was, yeah. What what was that whole experience of being in the court like though, just just emotionally for, for you and the rest of Kerry's family? Because most people don't have to ever go through that experience. It was raining and again because of COVID COVID we had to wait um about eighteen months for the trial. Um and the whole time we, we know he was in prison. His mother wasn't in prison, but we know he was in prison. Um, but the whole time, I suppose it's going through our heads, is he going to get away with this? And when we saw the extent of the injuries that he'd caused to her, um, it was, we have nightmares about it. Now, we know as well that you had to be the one to tell Kerry's children what had happened. And I mean, I I can't imagine how difficult that would have been and the impact on your whole family. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so we, so it was Sunday afternoon, Steve, my partner, contacted Kerry's ex-partner, so the children's dad, and he came over and met us outside the apartment. And then we all, we all went back to the house 
um, power of the children. So bearing in mind at this point, my mum was still with the children. I, I actually don't know how she managed to keep it together until we all got to the house to tell them together. Um, but I can remember walking in the house and the kids saw their dad. They immediately knew something was wrong. And I can, I can just remember, I can just remember them crying. I can't imagine what that must have felt like for all of you. So this is a relatively unusual case because it, it all happened so fast. Kerry wasn't in a romantic relationship with Bennett. Um, he had no criminal record. He was a little bit possessive, uh, but people weren't immediately aware of serious red flags. Um, so if, if that's the case, what do you think other people need to know? It, it is a difficult one because it's not... I think when you see people in relation, you do look for those red flags. Um, and I suppose thinking back, there was certain things that he said um, that would have made me think that's not normal. But I just thought he was trying to be some sort of superhero. I had no reason to believe that what he was telling me wasn't the truth. There were certain things that he did, and I thought, you're not helping her here. It's signs you've got to look out for that possessiveness comments that he made threatening saying that he'd kill anyone that went near her and things like that but it's it's a difficult message to get across with someone like Ian Bennett. I think maybe the the one really big take home as well is that someone doesn't have to be in a romantic relationship to be being controlled and coercively controlled because that's clearly what was happening here. Yeah yeah definitely as far as I know there was no uh, it wasn't a romantic relationship they were I suppose we could say she was passing the time of day with him. And we, we still don't know what caused him to do what he did. So I don't think we'll ever know that. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I think as a criminologist, one of the most interesting things to me is hearing about people's interactions with the judicial system, both good and bad. 
so I'm now going to be joined by Sally Bennett Jenkins KC to hear a little bit more about it from someone with a very unique perspective on that judicial system. So, Sally, to specifically ask you about something that relates to this case, I think one of the most shocking parts of it to me is the length that Bennett's mom went to to help cover up for him. Uh, It's certainly not the first time that someone has done that, and it almost certainly won't be the last time that someone tries to cover up for a loved one either. But is this something that you've come across often in your career? I have. It's It's not incredibly common. And it it can happen in a number of different ways. It can involve, for example, something as simple as as driving them away, collecting them from the scene. It can involve helping them to escape, perhaps even leave the country, because if people can move fast enough, then they are obviously going to be able, these days at least, to leave the United Kingdom quite, quite simply and quickly. It moreover tends to be, I think, much more um, low-key issues, washing clothes, receiving a bag of clothes and throwing them through a washing machine. Perhaps it can be dropping something into a canal. There are a whole variety of ways that, that the assistance can be given. But the intrinsic point about it is that the acts must be done in the knowledge or belief that the individual has committed a relevant crime. So that that's a difficult situation, I think, for a jury to look at because they then have to think, did this person do those acts knowing or believing that the individual has committed a crime? I think in this case, clearly the extent to which Bennett's mom uh, undertook this attempt to cover up was quite significant, wasn't it? And and ultimately she was found guilty of this offence and sentenced to prison. She was, and she received a a sentence of imprisonment of of quite some length. And I think that's the other aspect that people should understand, that it is a very serious crime. The court takes it extremely seriously when people uh, facilitate the disposal of matters which may very well implicate the offender. We've spoken to a lot of people on this podcast and also in the TV series, Hashtag Dead to Me as well, just generally about their experience within the criminal justice system. Um, Oftentimes, it's not a positive experience. You know, obviously, the justice system is something that you're only going to encounter during the worst time of your life. Um, You spend a lot of time in courts and speaking to victims, witnesses and perpetrators. And so I think you'll have a very unique view and experience of that criminal justice system. Uh, And I just wanted to ask you, what do you think that our listeners should know about our judicial system and how it works? I think there are a number of popular misconceptions about the way in which a criminal trial works. As you rightly identify, people are coming into contact with it at probably the worst point in their lives. A court is a very intimidating place. It's not designed to be. It doesn't set out to be. But simply because you have a degree of formality, it does bring with it uh, an air of austerity as well. So obviously, from the point of view of of the offender or alleged offender, there are pressures and difficulties for them. From the point of view of the family of victims, um, and I'm talking here, I suppose, principally about those who have lost a family member, 
then the justice system does not ignore them. And I think it's a popular misunderstanding that their voices are not being heard or that they're being ignored. That, that really isn't the case. The difficulty is that the family members may have important evidence to give in the context of the prosecution case. And the simple rule is, no matter who you are, you're not permitted to be in court until you have given your evidence. But largely, um, families of the deceased individual aren't giving evidence. Largely, they are there to observe and to follow the trial that involves the death of the very much loved person. And of course, even just saying those words, it brings to bear all sorts of emotions. How do you deal with the objective treatment of the death of your loved one? Because it has to be objective. We, we're not given to emotions in court. We must strip ourselves of those emotions to allow a jury to make dispassionate findings about the evidence. But for a family, it's particularly difficult. So Sally, I just want to pick up because you said that there's not place for uh, emotion in court. You know, it has to be objective and by law. I absolutely understand that. Do you think that's really possible, though? You know, to everyone involved, we're all humans, aren't we? And, uh, you know, I'm a criminologist and you're a Casey. We are around cases like this a lot of the time and we can give objective thoughts and opinions on them, sure. But I don't know that we can ever not bring emotion into it. Well, I say we have to deal with it in an objective sense and dispassionately because that is the direction that's given by every judge in every case to a jury. In terms of actual emotion, when you've hit the nail on the head, we have to deal with it objectively. We are we are lawyers. We are there to provide the jury with the information that they will act upon to find their verdict. Does it touch you? Of course it does. Um, the I think the skill involved, I would hope the skill involved, is that whatever your personal views about the information that you are holding or presenting, that you are able to communicate it in a in a, an objective fashion. Because it, it simply couldn't be the case, could it, that lawyers were dissolving into floods of tears as they presented evidence. That, that would help nobody. I don't, of course, ever suggest that what we see and what we read does not affect us. That, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be true at all. Both this case specifically and across the series, we're really predominantly... Well, in fact, we're solely talking about cases of domestic homicide. And I think what's shocking is that the picture that it builds is so clear that there are victims from all different backgrounds, all different profiles, all different demographics. Uh, I think that's the scary thing about domestic homicide, isn't it? It, it, it absolutely pervades everything. That There is no typical victim. There is no typical offender. And so you are not looking at, at perhaps almost in a Victorian criminology type way, at somebody and saying, I can tell by either looking at you or understanding your background, whether you are likely to be a victim or likely to be an offender. We have had individuals who have struggled 
and are at the lowest levels of society, if you like, homicides and domestic partnerships between the homeless. On the other hand, and at the other end of the scale, you've had killings of, of individuals who have almost objectively to the outside eye everything in life. They have beautiful homes, they have wealth, they have status, they have education. Um, in fact, I think one of the, the, the more shocking examples of domestic homicide was not in the UK, but one which get, um, garnered an awful lot of publicity because it was a trial lawyer in America who shot and killed his son and wife. Um, and again, if ever there was an example of you can never say what sort of person will commit that type of crime or be the victim of it, that, that was a perfect example. For anyone who does have to encounter the criminal justice system at some point in their lives, because they're affected by something like this, what's the one thing that you want them to know going into that situation? I think the central thing for them to know is that there is support, um, however difficult the position is for them. There is support and communication is, is key. Whichever side of the divide you're on, whether you are a part of the, the victim's family or friendship group, you will receive support. Whether you are part of the family or, or friendship group of the person facing the charges, then there is another mechanism by which you receive support, which is through the, the um, instructing solicitor who will help to continue liaison with you and with the person that is currently facing the trial. Just focusing for one moment on those who are brought into criminal proceedings because they have lost a loved one. I think the most important thing for them to hold on to is that there is support, there is communication, and the court and the criminal justice system is anxious that they feel a part of the process, that they're not excluded, and that their position within it is valued. And I think that I can honestly say that is something that that we all very much feel. Thank you so much, Sally. I could honestly just sit here and ask you questions all day because your experience is absolutely mind-boggling to me. Um, thank you so much for joining, though, and for sharing your insight and expertise with us. We really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Very, very nice to speak to you. Thank you. Stream the TV series Hashtag Dead to Me, that is Hashtag Dead Number Two Me, and thousands of hours of other unmissable true crime content, all ad-free on Crime and Investigation Play. We have an exclusive offer to listeners of this podcast to receive 50% off a subscription to Crime and Investigation Play app. Go to crimeandinvestigationplay.co.uk and you can use the offer code dead to me Again, that's dead, number two, me. Offers start 1st of October 2023 and ends 31st of December 2023. It is applicable for the full term of any package that you choose to purchase. The subscription auto renews at the standard package rate after the first term, depending on the package chosen. Dates might be subject to change at any time, but see the episode description for the full terms and conditions. Hashtag Dead to Me, The Interviews is a crime and investigation original podcast from First Look TV. 
Hosted by me, Onodoro Townsend. Produced by Caitlin Hanrahan. And executive produced by Sam Pearson and David Clifton. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.